gang, welcome to episode 127 of the No Presidium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson coming to you from NoPro headquarters in Los Angeles. Today on the show, two interviews, two segments are headed your way. The headliner, the one that you saw when you clicked on the thing, uh, that would be Rogue Artist Ensemble, who are fresh off of Kaidan Project Walls Grow Thin. We we recorded this the the day after they closed that show, which was like uh, two weeks ago now, uh, just under two weeks ago. Uh, we recorded it at the home of Sean Kowalti, who is the director of the show, also the artistic director of Rogue Artist Ensemble. And we were also joined by two others, uh, the writer, Chelsea Sutton, one of the writers, Chelsea Sutton, uh, and Lori Meeker, the costume designer for that show. All of them are ensemble members, and we're going to get to that get meaty interview in a little bit. We also have an opening segment uh, with Rolf Kent uh, of The Unmarked Door, who's here to talk about The Heart of Winter, which is their show that is opening in Culver City. More on that in a moment. But first, as always, got a couple of people to thank for joining the Patreon cause. Uh, just sneaking under the wire here in November. Uh, and we're looking to close the year out pretty strong. Um, the new folks are Victor Van Dorn. And uh, I'm probably going to mess up the next name. Johnny Sapatiak. Johnny, please write in so I can say your name right. Because, um, you know, classically bad. Classically bad. Um, you know what's a good idea? Here's a good idea. This is for everyone who who goes to patreon.com slash and pledges to the show. Um, as soon as you pledge, use the Patreon inbox to write me the pronunciation of your name. I don't care if your name is Alex Smith. Please, because knowing me, I might say Alex Smythe. Um, in fact, if an Alex Smith pledges and they don't, I'm going to do exactly that. All right. Um, the sustaining backers for No Persinium, as always, are Ross Sigworth, Bradley Smith, and Lonnie Hanson. Thank you, gentlemen, for uh, keeping this afloat. Let's keep moving forward. Last week on the show, those of you who listened all the way to the end, heard me tease something about a snowball fight. Now, what you may not know about me is that I really like snowball fights. Mostly because I've only been in one. Wait, how can you like something that you've... Just just trust me on this. I like snowball fights. Um... (laughs) So... What was fun about that was that someone in, in a rare, it is a rare occurrence when people write into the show or tweet at the show about things they hear on the show it happens, you know, a couple of times a month, someone within like hours was like, what's this about a snowball fight? A man after my own heart. Well, let me tell you, the snowball fight is part of the heart of winter, which is happening in Culver city. Uh, one weekend, we're going to get the dates in a second here. Uh, and it's from a new company called The Unmarked Door, uh, who are actually made up of some some immersive vets. Um, and uh, you can see that on their website and on the little thing we put up on the web, on our website. So if you go to nopersinium.com, you go into Now Playing, it's in there. You, you check out the, the newswire, the post for The Heart of Winter is up. Check the feeds. You know how to do this by now. 
Uh, but we have a quick interview with Rolf Kent, uh, who's the one of the creative forces behind the show, and we're going to run it for you right now. Hi, Rolf. Thank you for taking the time to hop on the computer with me today. Could you tell us about The Unmarked Door? Yes. Well, The Unmarked Door is uh, a little theater production company specifically for doing immersive experiences. And um, it's something I've been percolating for quite a while and um, now it is an actuality. So you've got a your first event, your inaugural event is going to be in Culver City uh, this month. Uh, yes, December. Yes, in the middle of December, we're doing the winter, the heart of winter. So this comes up, I think, what, in like a week, two weeks time? Like this goes out on the first. So give us, just give us, give us the elevator pitch for the show, because I'm sure everyone's going to be really curious. I mentioned that there's something about a snowball fight happening on the last episode, and someone actually messaged on Twitter and was like, what was this about a snowball fight? So <laughs> yeah, yeah, someone actually did. Uh, people want to know. So. So this is what's happening. So it's uh, it's on the 16th and 17th of December. And um, the uh, the experience is that everybody that comes is an old college friend. We all studied together under Professor Gustafsson. We studied um, advanced pyrotechnics and uh, human ballistics. And we're getting together for a winter camp, which happens indoors, of course, but um, but in the forest, in the uh, magical forest. And um, there are various, uh, it starts off with a snowball fight and uh, it involves intrigue, uh, games around the campfire and romance and polar bears, of course. Of course, naturally. You have to have polar bears at Christmas. It's one of the rules. Um, so what, what, I mean, so this, this sounds like it's a group experience, maybe you can kind of give some, without, without giving spoilers, kind of give a sense of like what it is that people can kind of expect of, of this. Because this is your first time out of the the gate. Is this like a, a solo kind of one-on-one thing that happens? Or is this like a, a kind of a, a group of people experiencing something all together? Where does this fit in sort of the framework? There's definitely room for one-on-ones. The uh, but uh, the audience there will be about forty members of audience um, each time. Uh, there's a cast of um, several, and um, so there there is a lot of interaction. There is a lot of participation, and um, the, but there with woven through it there is uh, a, a narrative element which the audience will um, alter and um, and modulate, and. Um, uh, there will be. It's also a musical event. I, I don't know if anyone's aware, but um, you know, I, my my day job is as a film composer. So uh, the, the I'm, I'm and I'm very intrigued by the use of um, music and uh, ideally live music and soundscapes in immersive productions. So uh, there is there is a fair bit of music in this as well as um, snowball fights and fireside games and uh, Swiffer skating. Um, so, uh, so in terms of the the experience, um, it, while participation will not be totally obligatory, in other words, it's possible to cower and um, and escape uh, somewhat. But um, but but essentially, it's a participatory event um, with the opportunity for one on ones, but uh, but mostly um, on, as a group. What. 
inspired you to go and stage uh, an immersive, and particularly an immersive at Christmas time? That that is just sort of timing. Uh, you know, it just turned out that this was the season when we really sort of got momentum up, and so it, it just made sense to do something intriguing and wintry. Um, the uh, I, I've loved immersive for a few years. When I first went to see um, Mask of the Red Death by Punch Drunk in London, and uh, I've seen a bunch of different Punch Drunk shows, um, including Sleep No More, of course, and um, and also a lot of secret cinema shows. And uh, I don't know if people are as familiar with secret cinema, but they are they are huge in the UK and um, no masks, so much more. Uh, exposed much more um, uh, room for interaction, for genuine interaction, and I and I love that. So I um, I've been long pondering how to uh, participate in this world and bring music to it as well, music and and audio. I mean, we've got other projects lined up, which uh, either utilize music a lot or u- utilize binaural uh, sounds and things like that. So, um, it's been, it's, it's just such a magical thing. And, you know, in this, in our current era, the idea of participating in the thing rather than merely being a spectator of it strikes such a strong chord with me. So that's, that's where my enthusiasm for it came from. Well, that's really exciting. I'm, I'm particularly excited to see someone who's, who's been a fan of secret cinema go into the interactive space here in Los Angeles. Um, so anything else people should know about the show? Um, we know it's the 16th, 17th, Culver City. Uh, any details you can hand out to us? And how do you get tickets? That's that's probably the, the biggest question. Are they on sale yet or are they going on sale in the next couple of days? They, they are on sale. Um, you can go to Eventbrite or you can go to theunmarkeddoor.com and uh, you can uh, get tickets through there. Um, you should know it's for 21 and above. And um, there are we're running four shows over that weekend. So uh, there's the earlier time and the later time. Um, that's it. The show will run about an hour and a quarter. And um, anyone who buys a ticket will automatically get an uh, an email invitation from from the person from the person in the show that they are part of the you know their their team captain effectively. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. This sounds like a lot of fun, and uh, I hope I'm going to get a chance to check it out. So, Rolf, thank you so much, and uh, good luck with the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, and tickets are on sale now for The Heart of Winter. You can find the links at com, and also in all the spaces that we usually have, right? So, you know, the Facebook, everything immersive, yada, 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 yada. You know what to do. Um, snowball fight. Snowball fight. Um yeah, I'll probably see you there. Maybe I'll hit you with a snowball. I mean, it'll be a real snowball. Anyway, personal obsessions aside, um, <laughs> the next uh, interview we have for you, uh, the big one, the centerpiece sh- for the show, uh, this is with Rogue Artist Ensemble, uh, who, like I said, at the top of the show, had just wrapped Kaidan Project, Walls Grow Thin. This was an incredibly ambitious show, um, you know, multiple floors in a storage facility space inside uh, the middle of Los Angeles. Uh, 
just you know, projections and puppetry and just like every every tool that's in the theater maker's box went into this show. Um, I had the the privilege of seeing the show twice. I saw it on opening weekend. Uh, I wrote my review based on that. And there were some bumps along the way. And uh, actually, Sean reached out and said, like, oh, hey, you know, that wasn't technically uh, that great of a run. We're still finding our feet. You know, would you like to come back? I want you to really see the piece when it's settled. And this actually brings up something interesting, um, like in, in the aggregate here, which is, you know, no matter how much work goes into the preparation for a piece, and as you can hear in this interview we're about to have, a whole lot of work went on uh, with Kaidan for years, really. Until you're running the show in the space, you just don't have time for the flavors to meld. And, you know, uh, in, a, in a kind of semi-related thing, the same weekend I, I went back to Safe House 77, which I actually saw the very first preview of. And the the, the the testing preview, like the second time they ran the whole show and the first time they ran it with anyone involved is we were there to to preview it. Also, that's why it's like, why didn't you you review? Why did why didn't you send Lauren Bellow to review Safe House? It's like, well, I was at the preview and I gave notes. So I can't review a show that I give notes on. And if you find someone reviewing a show they've given notes on, call them out on it. Um, it's just, that's the way it works. Um, I can send someone else to review the show because we need to cover shows, but I'm not going to review a show myself um, that I've given notes on. So, you know, we gave copious notes to Nick on, on Safe House, and I got to come back like in the middle of the run and just to see how much it's come together. And then, you know, a day later or the day before, time blurs, you know how the season is, uh, the same experience a similar experience with Kaidan in that I, I had seen a, you know, a show where some things you know, did not go right. Um, and that materially affected the show because when you have a show that's, that requires tight tuning, um, if something goes wrong, it, it really starts to kind of come undone. Um, and you know, this, this happens, this, this is the kind of thing where in immersive it's, it's even more dangerous, right? Because in theater, we've got, you know, your usual proscenium show, we've got suspension of disbelief. And, you know, let's say a light goes out or something, you know, we're all sort of in on the gag. We can be like, oh, haha. And usually an actor covers, like someone does something clever, makes a quip, and we move on. In immersive, in so many ways, because the depth of suspension of disbelief is greater, it strangely is more fragile. So when something goes wrong, and I've been in a lot of shows where something has gone wrong, timing has gone off, and because folks are trying to create these wondrous other worlds, it can really just, just kind of crumble. So it's with great joy that I can say that when I went back on the closing weekend for Kaidan, um, it was buttery smooth in terms of execution, and that sort of delicate snowflake structure of of an immersive held up and the crystalline nature of this thing really shone through so it was it's, it's it was a really great piece um 
I'm really, 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 really happy that I went back and I'm, I'm happy for the team just to where this thing goes and, and how it all really came together. Cause there's, there's phenomenal performances that were in there. Uh, and just, just really just fantastic, fantastically designed spaces. And we get into all that in this interview. So let's not delay a second longer. Here is our interview with rogue artist ensemble members, Sean Kowalti, Chelsea Sutton, and Lori Meeker talking about Kaidan project walls grow thin. Sean, there are a lot of puppets and masks of like every stripe in this house. We're at your house. We're at your your kitchen table. Yes. Um, even above you. Even above. Even above, oh really? Oh there. Oh yeah. There. Oh whoa. With eyes. Um, <laughs> that's pertinent because your the the work of rogue artist ensemble tends to be very rooted in in puppetry and mask work so uh, before we get into the show you just closed maybe maybe you all could uh talk about that thread of your work (laughs) (laughs) so rogue artists ensemble is a uh, collective of designers and craftspeople mainly Mm -hmm. although we do have some folks in the ensemble that also identify as as actors uh i think a lot of the work of the ensemble tends to be of the visual storytelling uh, variety and has a big component that's a physical theater and um, uh, puppet and mask based uh, approach. I, I, although we don't typically call ourselves a puppet theater, uh, I think you know if you were to break out you know by percentage, each show has a s- small number of puppet elements, but they tend to be really at the core of each of the projects in, in some way or another. And um, that's a big part of our, of our work, I, I, I think, over the years. There are not many companies in Los Angeles, especially, that create work using puppets and masks for adult audiences. Yeah. And that's something that is, is really important to the work of the ensemble. What... What led you guys to do, and, and Lori, maybe you can, how do you pronounce it properly? It's Which one? The, the, the name of the show. Kaidan. Kaidan. Because I've been around saying Kaiden. So it's Kaidan. Kaidan. Because I have readers' disease. So I see a word, as I like to say, there were, for a long time, there were two words in the English language there was epitome and there was epitome. And they meant very similar things. Because I had read one and heard the other uh, <laughs> and uh, never the twain had met until mm, uh, senior year of high school so <laughs> that, that was good from like junior high so Kaidan um, what did I get it right? yeah oh, good okay good 100% okay um, how see, I told you this is just a <laughs> random conversation you're looking at me like this really is random yes this is exactly how it goes this is how it will end good um, the uh, what what led you guys to do this this show to collect Japanese ghost stories and uh, invade a warehouse. The warehouse came much after. Yeah, it was like ten years of preparatory work for it. So uh, I think closer to seven, maybe from the very beginning, uh, but on and off. But how many years have we been 
working on what? Two, two years for the, what? From the workshop to this was two years. From the first workshop. The one in the Japanese Garden in Van Nuys. That was know? just last year. Yeah. Yeah. That was just and last year. And then we had a workshop last summer. So it's been it's been two years that we are we have been uh, hardcore trying to get this up. That's yeah. Chelsea, by the way, just so you guys know. <laughs> but there, there was a good five years before that that it was just in discussions. We had floating around, floating around, talking to other playwrights. Uh, it started with Sean having a discussion with Tim Dang, the then artistic director of East West Players. Mm-hmm. I think you guys were throwing around ideas mm-hmm. about how to bring Japanese ghost stories at the time to Little Tokyo. Is that correct? Yeah, and and a lot of the impulse. From, for that conversation came from uh, one of the founding rogues, uh, Megan Wallace, who uh, at, a, a few years ago had brought a project to the ensemble that was all about these shape-shifting animal stories mm. from Japanese mythology. Mm. And the fox was a big part of that, this, this fox shape-shifting character. And we couldn't really crack that project at that point. So, like a lot of rogue projects <laughs> that tend to be, you know, have a life, and then they kind of get put back in the incubator and cooked for a long time. And that that definitely was the case with this project. But Tim Tim was really encouraging, and he said, you know, actually, there's so many other stories, and there's mm-hmm. some really amazing ghost stories. And have you heard of Lafcadio O'Hearn? And um, you know, why, why don't we head down that rabbit hole? and see what what we can kind of find. And so he was really the motivator for this collaboration with East West Players. Uh, and, um, and But it's so much changed since oh, yeah. then, uh, too. Especially since we moved away from being in Little Tokyo, but we still wanted to keep with the site-specific mm. idea. I mean, it's changed so much just because it depends on the site that you end up with. Yeah, sight can change a piece drastically. Yeah. And, and this piece in particular, I mean, before we started recording, you were talking about how much you guys were changing the site even, like transforming that space. It was, what, a six-floor oh yeah. six storage facility? Mm-hmm. Uh, Built in, in 1927? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Each floor is about 5,000 square feet, and it has a really fascinating history. Uh, in Los Angeles, in, in that part of town, and um, we found it. It was one of those incredible friend of a friend of a friend situations, and ended up being able to work with the building owner to use two floors entirely, and then half of one floor, so two and a half floors in the building. And to pre- prep for the piece, we had to do an incredible amount of cleaning. And demolition. Yeah, demolition. Mm-hmm. We tore down around 30-something walls, 32 walls, I think, around 32 or 34. And um, those large uh, dumpsters that you get that are the size of a like a semi-truck mm. that are half-bed. I mean, right. you can't have a full height because the cement is too heavy. Right. We, we filled, I think, over five of those. Whoa. And um, it was all volunteer-based. Well, the salt hammers. of the earth, people, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had, um, and we dug deep into the rogue community to find <laughs> the helpers for that. Swing a hammer. Yeah. In, including my father. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> when, you, when you realized the scale of what it was you were taking on, 
did did you guys balk at all? Did you say, okay, hold on here? There's definitely moments when we were like pouring over the myriad of stories that were available mm. where it's like, how do we pick, what is our selection process? How do we pick like what's important? Mm-hmm. And, and it, it was an interesting kind of mixture from what I was noticing of like, here are the stories that our audiences are probably going to expect or want to see. Here are like the classic Kaidan tales. And then there are these ones that we really like. Mm-hmm. And how do those fit together? And I don't, I mean, I'm sure at some point that there was intention about making it a female tale. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these stories kind of, and at least when I was looking at them, was like, oh, these are, a lot of these are about terrible things happening to women. Mm-hmm. Like, that's significant. And that's really interesting. And then starting the process of, like, honing those down to, like, a very small amount. But mm-hmm. they're like um, Grimm's fairy tales where there's, like, 50 different Little Mermaid stories. There's, like, 50 different stories about a girl in a well because they're all, like, told by mouth and traveled down. And it's it's all these stories about people that are trees, people that are willow trees, people that are cherry blossom trees. Like, all of these, like, massive stories. And then which ones do you, do you just pick ones that you like? What's the social significance of those? Huge conversations about not just, like, we want to tell cool ghost stories, but also what are we trying to say with those ghost stories? And I think that was actually something that was ultimately really successful while making this a female-centric mm-hmm. show. And finding, and even, like, the tale of Hoichi is not about women. And we kind of put a feminine spin on it and made the the bad guy was Hoichi in mm-hmm. our version, which is not the typical way. So we can kind of like guide our audience to this understanding of like, we're following a female character, this hero, we want to help her, and these are the, her experiences. And I thought it was really successful, and you can speak to Chelsea about our, maybe our playwriting process <laughs> and that. Like how we chose our stories? Well, I, I feel like um, this was one of those situations where the workshop was a huge part of the mm. selection process and mm. figuring out what the show is. Because there was so much discussion for years and years, and Lisa and I just kind of came in um, like a year and a half ago, and we just jumped in and we had all these ideas that everyone else had been talking about, we had our own ideas, so we just decided, um, and Sean was doing some writing at the time too, for some stories, we kind of threw, <laughs> I forgot about that. we threw everything at the wall to see what would stick basically mm. in that workshop and we had so many stories we loved yeah. and 20, we just 28 different yeah we did like 28 different stories oh, and wow. just in different ways just to kind of see what is working what does our audience respond to what are we responding to when we actually get this idea up on its feet um so it's a lot of trial and error and i think out of that that's when those um, core stories started to kind of come to the surface. That's when the Kitsune myth started to really come to the surface mm. for us. She, um, in the workshop, was just, she was two different monologues. She was a like present-day Kitsune character that was like a descendant who mm. had this kind of fox strength. It's almost and like a superhero. Kind of, yeah, she was yeah. like a superhero, and she was kind of sassy and fun. And then we had this kind of ancient kitsune, like the very first kitsune, who was walking through in this beautiful kimono and this mask, and she had a very different feel. But just dealing with those monologues that um, uh, Lisa wrote, Mm -hmm. they were very feminist and very much about this female spirit and what does it mean to be two things? What does it mean to be a woman and all this stuff? So when we um, 
came out of that workshop and started to look at these things, those two monologues really stood out as thematic, um, important thematic through lines for us as writers. And we started to look at all the stories based on those very um, core themes. And we started to try to make connections. Because the end result, which where the through line is the story of Kana, Kana Mori, who's, mm-hmm. who's building it is, you, you get this sense of, you know, rage denied, rage and guilt kind of churning under the surface. And, and particularly in the cultural moment we find ourselves in right now, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like I, I had the privilege of watching it on opening night and also on closing weekend. And, and sort of in, in the interim, there's been this massive yeah. cultural shift that's happened because mm-hmm. of, you know, every every day my, my wrist goes off and it's like, oh, which celebrity did a horrible thing yeah. to women now? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's that, oh, that one, really? Right. You? You, Charlie Rose? Mm-hmm. Who was today when we're recording yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and looking at the lens of, of Kana's story, um, you know, looking at things like, you know, Red Vengeance, you know, which is a soda she's obsessed with, but also the, the concept of vengeance and the walking around carrying this guilt for, you know, putting something out of its misery that shouldn't have been put out of its misery um, is is very interesting to see as as we're grappling with just the way the way the roles have broken down in mm-hmm. the culture and how we have not fully digested like a generation past the sexual revolution the children of that generation have not digested what that world is supposed to be like and for it to be a a female-centric story and for so many of the stories to be like well a man killed a woman and then the woman got revenge yeah it was it was amazing to go through the stories and go oh it's that story again yeah oh how interesting that's yeah yeah, that's exactly it yeah but but i remember having many conversations with lisa and i think with sean as well that like we didn't want to write a play that was like men are bad look Mm -hmm. at all the bad things men do because it's much more complicated than that. And it was important for us to have sort of the the villain and the main character be women. Mm-hmm. That we weren't mm-hmm. fighting against men as a concept in this, in this story. It was more about violence against each other, about how violence against an innocent in many of these stories mm-hmm. creates this vengeful spirit that then right. cannot be satiated with just revenge. Cycle. It's yeah. just a cycle that keeps going. Oh, absolutely. A bad thing. Can, we all have these horrible, dark things inside us that are ready to come out at any moment. Yeah. Hurt, mm-hmm. people hurt, people. Mm-hmm. hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people hurt people. It just doesn't end until you make a different choice. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. we wanted to, you know, have like, have those stories of these terrible men doing terrible things, but we also didn't want that to be the like, we're women writing that story and saying men are ter- terrible. We're yeah. saying it's all, that there's this darkness in all of us. Yeah. The final boss, in, you know, isn't just, you know, patriarchy. The final boss is violence. Yeah. The yeah. final boss is... is rage. Rage. Yeah. Yeah. rage. Yeah. And guilt and shame and all these things that... Um, mm-hmm. And how women treat each other, because women can be terrible to each other as well. Yeah. And some kind of atonement, too. I mean, that's one of the things that's nice about the, the ritual concept and that we come to the end you know it's like it's it's not i mean there's that Campbellian breaking breakdown of it's at one meant right it's like rage is a component of the human experience 
So you can try and suppress it and shove it out of the way, and it just explodes and possesses you, and the compulsion goes on. Or you can find you can try and find some way to balance those powers out. There's something really, there's something primal about mass work and puppetry mm. that 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 sort of I think lets people go there, go into the archetypal. Is that is that one of the ways you guys sort of see it, or? Sometimes it, it. I think we have a lot of conversations about the why, mm-hmm. why we're telling a specific moment in mm-hmm. with the tools that we're choosing, and if that's the right thing or not. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and, and to be clear for the audience who, who didn't get a chance to see the show, which is a shame, if you didn't, or you're in New York, so you didn't. Um, it's not all puppetry. It's like it's like the, don't don't make that mistake at all. Like the the tool is used. But it's not the only tool in the toolbox. But it's one I'm I'm personally sort of obsessed with as well. So, and, and with like this project too, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we went through we, we went through a lot to try to hide as much as we could the puppeteers, so that there were these moments of illusion, and um, I think people can leave the experience and are are not quite sure how certain things are manifesting. Yeah, and um, that I think was a really successful aspect of the piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they are incredibly potent devices, puppets and masks. And when they're used right, and they're used, I think, with reverence and with a, um, they're approached with this level of respect and care. They they can be very effective. I I think it's hard for uh, folks, for Americans, frankly, we don't really have that tradition in our. DNA as much as other parts of the world. Yeah. So we tend to, I think, within Rogue, pull inspiration from from all over to try to figure out w- how we're going to create these moments. And um, there's so many tools in your toolbox. You know, the, I mean, the the puppetry, the projections. You know, the traversal on this was you know fantastic. You know, designing designing rooms that had to be you know kind of destroyed in order to like get through them I think he's physically pushing through boxes and like that the, the, you know confuses most people like we're in a dead end what do you do now and it's like oh yeah and, and particularly running through a second time and not wanting just like you know I, I have all the answers and so like, Once you're done, you're like oh, this, this, you need to push 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 the push that there um why try moving a box yeah you know, let's, let's maybe, see what happens yeah it's like, who, who knows um uh, did, the assembly of of this work. I mean, you guys started with all these different stories, and you're pulling it together, and and mm-hmm. and looking at each. Did did different teams take on different rooms? Because sometimes it, it felt that way. Like, because some some spaces had like such a strong identity, and then a, and you go to a different space that has a completely different identity. Um, there's there's thematic elements that tie it all, all together. But what was what was you guys's? What's the secret sauce? It was was really the same three folks that did pretty much every single... There were three members of the scenic design team. One officially titled a prop designer, although he certainly did a hell of a lot of scenic design um, through through his prop creations. And um, sometimes uh, there were were some specific ownerships over different aspects, but I think each of those three individuals touched every space. And uh, but we we designed. I mean, we, we we kind of obsessively talk through all of the design choices we make. Yeah, and, and there was a different vision for each. Like 
each story. Yeah. And I think each story called for a different kind of storytelling. And we, we wanted there to be a kind of letting go at some point and a progression that felt um, unexpected, especially when you get up to the sixth floor in mm-hmm. Oiwa in the commercial scene. Mm-hmm. And, and knowing that that was always going to be a big choice, a strong choice that we were had moments of doubt, but felt excited by it. Mm-hmm. And also we, you know, the ending, we always had talked about that space, having a certain feeling. And some, some of the experience can be charted through this idea of, of, um, of kind of realness. Mm. Uh, I think that, that we, we talked a lot about the first stories, wanting them to be kind of a primer and acknowledging that a lot of audience members, especially because of this being a collaboration with East-West Players, where those particular audience members, you know, if they're seeing East-West Players work, that's that's not immersive right. site-specific theater. That's very traditional proscenium work. So how do we create something that can help to um, nurture an audience's experience and, and step them through? So the first couple stories are a little more theatrical, a little more... Yeah, you, you, you sit down and you watch a thing yeah. in those first two stories, and then suddenly there's a point where the story starts to attack you. Yeah. So you have this... And you don't you have, have chairs like, anymore. Yeah, and then you have 10 minutes to kind of get used to this idea of being here and yeah. being in a warehouse, but you're sitting and it's like a normal thing, and then everything changes. It turns. Instead of being completely thrown into an odd world. So it, it is a primer. Um, and those gave us opportunities to use um, animation and yeah. shadow puppetry, which you're going to have to have people kind of sit and look at a thing in order mm-hmm. for that to work. Um, the black lights required a certain perspective. Yes, and you can't have people wandering around in a completely dark space. (laughs) So we could then we could use those tools because we could contain the audience a little bit more for for a short amount of time. Right. Yeah. And then after that, we could use something that was a little more expansive, a little different. Yeah, because the very next scene is them standing in a hall, Mm -hmm. and there's no, there's nothing that resembles anything that even remotely feels like a traditional theater experience. And, and then the next room, you were standing behind boxes, and you're moving constantly. At least yeah. I was usually moving yeah. constantly to look through holes to get different perspectives. Yeah. In a scene. And you're you you and at that I think for many audience members, I heard that that was the first point. Whether they were using the word agency or not, mm-hmm. that was the first point where they had experienced that moment in a storytelling experience where they were put in a position where they had to do something active and mm-hmm. choose a position. And also choose whether or not to interact with this individual. Yeah. And that that was very shocking for a lot of people. I, I think in both times I saw it, I could feel the audience change in that mm. scene. Because the you know, being pulled into the hallway by Kana is, you know, disorienting. Mm. So you're not really quite sure, but there's still there's still lights telling you this is where to look and mm-hmm. there's there's still there's still a um, if nothing else, you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of in, a, in the round situation, although I'm sort of like in the rectangle situation. <laughs> yeah, really long nice. rectangle. And then, but then once you're herded into uh, that next scene, because of the, the way the, the boxes have been torn and it's like looking through a fence with a bunch of mm-hmm. you know, holes in it, like, you, you, indeed, you've got to keep on moving. You can find your spot, but like maybe, oh, is that better? No, oh, he moved, now it's... And suddenly you start to know that your relationship to this work is not going to be static mm-hmm. at all. And then you, you, people just start to get in the groove. Mm-hmm. Then. And then you're asked by that actor for things. Yeah. To so yeah. hand him things. Yeah. And he did tell me that there were a few times, there is a moment, it's not a spoiler because the show's closed now, yeah. but 
He asks for the axe. There's yeah. an axe on the other side. And there were a few times where people refused to give it to him. Yeah. And there was sometimes he asked for a stick. Can you hand me that stick? Yes, yeah. he had to sometimes adjust. Sometimes he had to adjust. Yeah. 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 And they're like, oh, you mean this axe? <laughs> yes, that's it. Hand that to me, please. Like, oh, crap. <laughs> what would yeah. I do? He said, he said the, the second time, he said, uh, there's a tool in there that I oh, need. Oh, yes. Right? There's a tool I need. And, so, and, and some people knew what it was. They're like, don't give it to him. Like, the guy was like, here you go. You know? And people were like, shouting, yeah. don't do it. So it's really it. interesting about this piece that we kind of, I mean, we kind of stuck a little bit. There's ghost ideas of this idea that the audience is complicit in a lot of this activity. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's moments in, I mean, there was sort of this underlying story of that we were friends with her at a young age. And we were there with her when this traumatic event happened, and we caused it with her. Mm. Um, that kind of faded away a little bit, but it was still very much there in Oiwa, where mm-hmm. we are directly asked to tell our hero, I want to see you in pain. This yeah. is what I want. This, In the sense of this commercial, they need her to act in pain, mm-hmm. and, and we have to say these things. And when my boyfriend went through it, he's, he's like, I... I, I'm glad they didn't say that to me because I wouldn't say it. I knew mm-hmm. he, he knew he wouldn't say it. And so it's hard. Mm-hmm. And especially with the climate and how it changed from the beginning of the show to the end of the show. Mm-hmm. Where a woman turns to me and she goes, I'm really uncomfortable with this. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, good. Like, yeah, but I'm also like, Do, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, which, what level are you at? Yeah. Um, that, that, I really liked that, though. I think yeah. it was really powerful. I like it too. I, I loved that scene on a number of levels, I think I think a lot of audience members that I spoke with had the um, experience where after, when I was speaking with them about that scene, they processed it, maybe for the first time, mm. in the middle of the conversation, and it made them very uncomfortable in a way that I think the best stories do, the yeah. best experiences do, yeah. that make you think, make you reconsider, and um, I think that that's a really powerful part of it. Well, and most of the time when I saw it, whenever anyone said that I want to see you in pain usually everyone in the room laughed yeah and which was which always made me really uncomfortable and really happy because it felt like Mm. that means they are uncomfortable and it also means like we have to make light of this because this is something that kind of happens all the time and every day yeah and we are feeling very complicit in this and you're absolutely right this is this idea of we participate in everyone else's pain and the violence and we are the spectators and we are on twitter reading these stories and it's part of our entertainment on some level as well Mm -hmm. so even though the the we did cut out the story of like we are the childhood friends partly just for simplicity Mm -hmm. yeah we were talking about how to get information to the audience and what amount of information you need to have and all of that but we didn't want to lose the those few moments where you start to feel like I am participating in the pain of another person. Yeah. Oh, maybe I can have more agency in my life or right. something. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also a relationship we have as audience, or it's it's funny because I think about you know when I would write stories and how much I would hate to put my characters through torture, mm-hmm. right? Like that's just not physically comfortable thing to do necessarily which is why i stopped writing a lot of one of the reasons why i stopped writing fiction right because because <laughs> you've got to right like in order for there to be a story there must be pain right mm-hmm. so there's yeah. like there's a one level of it where you know we are all complicit 
and it's it's because there's what's nice about that scene and what we're talking about is is the commercial scene mm-hmm. uh, where you know you you've been told we're coming to the forest where where all the secrets can happen and then the doors open and just boom you're on a commercial set for a soda and Kana is transformed into another character suddenly and you're there with these sort of demon prince director and director's assistant and they're <laughs> and they're they're putting her through the paces and everyone's turned into like you know oh you've got the you've got the cue card you've got the camera you know make demands um and so there's there's the narrative we've been in there's the narrative the vignette we're entering into there's the story they're telling in that the story mm. of the commercial and then there's the overtones of the uh, you know abusive Hollywood set yeah. that's all happening all at once. So five things are going on at once. And then just for just for funsies, uh, there's there's just the fact of like you know in order for this to progress, we must actually see her in pain. Like yeah. you know like we don't get out of that scene unless she, she has to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the hero must die for the story to, to move on. Um, you 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 definitely by. Uh, Sort of going through the five layers that pretty much sums up the entire process. Yeah, <laughs> and all the conversations of inception and uh, how to orient everything, and it's it, yeah, that's well, a huge yeah. What's undertaking. What's particularly fun about that one is like if you want to, you can watch the live video feed of what's going on in the room. Yeah, mm-hmm. like you can choose how much you want to disassociate from the the work that's re- literally in front of you. Yeah. Um, I think one of the guys, the second time through, he chose to disassociate by just dancing with the cue card the entire time. Oh, <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Yeah. That guy. Yeah. 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 He got a yelling at, I think. Oh, from a friend? By the director. Oh, by yeah. A mirror. Within, oh, oh, by a mirror, yeah. One of the actors. He, one of the actors. One of the, in was, character. Yeah, he just said, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he did. He did. He did, like, oh, quit dancing, you know, like, yeah. you know, or someone's just not dancing. Yeah, I don't know. That's fantastic. But it was, he did not stop dancing, by the way. He just, oh, he just great. kept on. Oh. Wonderful. Yeah. But, but, find, find your bliss. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that guy, that, it, that guy was interesting. Well, let's talk about the audience. Let's talk about, like, you know, how, how often, I know you guys work in all kinds of different forms. So, like, how often have you gone interactive, immersive? before? Is this your first real major endeavor in this fashion? Well, Woodboy Dogfish had uh, 3D glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> and it had, like, like those sonic Imagine guns it. at the yeah. We Yeah, we had moments where we did them. break the fourth wall more than just, like, someone speaking to the audience. Yeah. Like, right. like, we, like, Miles threw candy. There was, there's a moment where he breaks open a pinata and throws candy at the audience. Yeah. It's actually a horrific moment. Ugh. And then there is a 3D moment where everyone has to put 3D glasses on, and so that was maybe one of those early yeah. play. We, but that. nothing a lot moving of s- groups of people. No, no, no. we've done site-specific work in strange places, but often it's touring work and it's made to be, exist where we place it. I mean, so, Senior so Plumber what? was Senior Plumber, and then galas. I feel, I feel like a lot of our, a lot of our. Our research has been our galas because mm. they tend to be these immersive spectacles where the attendees get a, a guide, you know, kind of treasure map, mm. and then they can follow the treasure map and seek out all of these different experiences. Some of them are one-on-one experiences. Some of them are quite perverse. Some of them are just funny, weird, and that's that's become a big part of the company's mm. uh, work is creating those those experiences. Um, so so why go so why go immersive with this one why why go for the? That's a good 
question. Was it Tim that suggested it? No, I I feel like it just I don't I don't really know. I mean, sometimes things sometimes things feel like the right thing, and mm. this did. I, I I I will say maybe it's I mean just for my I, maybe I've never articulated this. I think part of why I was interested in maybe the subconscious is uh, there's something kind of um, exhausting about the. Um, trying to achieve the goal of intimate experience in a large proscenium space. Mm. A, a, a lot, a lot mm. of our work has been at the bootleg, yeah. which I would say is our home. Uh, we've, I think, premiered five or six shows there over the years. Big, big productions. 100 people in the audience or more, and you can't really be intimate with each person. There, yeah. There's not a controlled experience. So I think I was, I think I was very interested in what that the opposite end of the spectrum would be. And I also have a real fascination, I think, with um, like the machination of things and how structure and storytelling and the audience experience charts through an experience, uh, you know, of, of performance. Yeah. And this was like the perverse extreme of that. <laughs> and got to be so crazy with all the tech elements. and. Well, there's something, like you're telling scary stories yeah, they're always yeah. going to be a lot scarier in a room with four people in the dark telling them even with just like one little candle that's going to be way more prolific as far as horror yeah, yeah. than in a huge proscenium stage even if we had our big puppets and like none of those things would be would i think have the impact yeah. if we were sitting in the bootleg and i was yeah. all the way in the back and our big mama puppet from the end of this the show would come out and she'd look small she'd look tiny oh, yeah. but when you're sitting there with maybe 12 other people on and she floor. on the floor yeah. and she comes out She's of the darkness feet tall. yeah and you're looking up at her it's completely different it reminds me of you know I would tell people after I saw Sleep No More, you know, there were certain sequences in, in there that if I, some dances that if I saw on a Presidium stage, I would have just been like, eh, Meh. you know, like that's, okay, fine, I've seen something like that before. But when you're two feet away and you can see the actors sweat and their muscles straining, it completely mm. changes uh, the experience because your relationship to that performer is a lot more visceral, a lot more profound. And there's something different about being an audience member in an experience like that and being aware of your own body in a space mm -hmm. and how you're interacting. Yeah. Like my experience with Sleep No More, I was way more interested in the psychology of myself mm. being stuck behind a mask and being having this weird freedom yeah. to like push myself into someone else's space and story mm. than what was even really going on. Like I I felt like a different person when I was in that story than when I came out. Yeah. And so I feel like people, how they interact with a story when they're faced, face to face with it, it's very different than if I have to sit passively in a chair yeah. and take it in. What is the, what has the yeah. audience reaction been? Particularly, like, let's talk about some of those, you know, the people who might have, like, you know, subscriptions to East-West players and, like, oh, they came through. Like, what's been the reaction for folks who are getting kind of initiated into this? It's, it's been really fascinating, really positive. Yeah. yeah I, I, a lot of nervousness yeah. at first. I was at the box office a lot, and there were a lot of East-West players, people who were like, we don't even know what this is. And I kind of tried to give them a little, like, primer as far as here's how to, you know, be prepared. Mm-hmm. 
um, and they would come out, and some of them would say, that was interesting. And I would sort of probe them a little, like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm glad you came. I'm glad you tried this out. It was, and then they would start to talk more, mm-hmm. and they were, and then they were excited. It was like they were still processing. Yes. And I made them put some things into words, and then it seemed like they really liked it's it. It's the first time I've ever done anything like this. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and it's not, I mean, it's certainly not the most intense immersive experience mm-hmm. out there, but I think it's enough that it can, it can be assaulting for people. You know, well, and in terms, in terms of scope and scale, it's like the biggest thing that's been in L.A., just on just mm-hmm. a pure traversal level, right? So for the local audience who hasn't, you know, stepped out into the, the world to, like, hunt down, sleep no more, or go to Denshi Fell, you know, there, nothing's mm-hmm. had this much traversal here in town. Nothing's been this complex by far. And I thought, <clears throat> the, the second second time I saw it this weekend, uh, you know, Spencer came out to give the... Uh, the preload, you know, not the curtain speech, but the preload speech. And I thought it was really interesting that Mm. when defining the rules, and this is almost like a, a, this is a thing now. In fact, one person, uh, I was at a show about two months ago, and there was another creator there, and then they came out and they like gave the rules for everybody. And the creator turned to me, because they hadn't done that at their show. I was like, is that what so many people do now? Do they give the rules? And I was Mm. like, well, well, there's, you know, like people... One, one, you've got escape rooms has changed the way people oh relate to spaces. So escape room people are going to think they can tear things apart, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got, so you've got to tell people you, you, this is not that. Indeed, Spencer did that. But what I thought was really beautiful was that, mm-hmm. you know, he said, uh, "Wait for the invitation," mm-hmm. right? You know, like you know, you're not really going to talk. You're not going to, but like, wait for the invitation. If the invitation is given, mm-hmm. take it. Right and and sort of defining that's the hook for, um, f- for agency. And I thought about you know the way it. Mm. And then she felt they said you know like don't speak unless spoken to, and in sleep no more they just tell you to like you know be quiet. But even and then that gives them full control. But even then they might take you aside, take your mask off, you mm-hmm. know, like whisper something to you, ask you a question. Mm. Um, now that's that's the. That's the invitation. It's just sort of framed a little more transgressively. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to think about these kinds of experiences. It's not just also being uh, the artists telling a story, how we are telling this one, but the audience utilizing it as a tool to be someone else. And oh, like yeah. like how you're saying how your experience was in Sleep No More, like you put the mask on and now you're kind of anonymous. And I wonder sometimes if people kind of use this as a, like, a personal escape. Like, mm. I'm going to... I, I like to come to these things and be loud. I like to come to these things and, and look and explore and, or, I don't know. I think there's a lot more um, people defying conventions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why our rules became important. Yeah. Because we were not really, I think, fully prepared for what might happen in, in an escape room life. <laughs> in the world of things that aren't glued down. Um, that, that office room, the first room was really problematic at first mm. because escape room audience members would come in and try to yeah. solve it we had to right. add the escape room note yeah yeah a, a couple weeks in yeah and we had we played with certain lines in the office first it was mm-hmm. don't take any don't touch anything right and that was not helpful because then nobody was touching things we wanted 
people to have a moment where they could pick something up and look at it, right. hold it in their hand. People so told then, me the first night because because there was that line, "Don't don't touch anything," and the phone rang, and I was like, yeah. oh, the phone. "Don't pick up the phone," and I was like, yes. was like oh, "Oh, this is come on, really?" You know, and then I picked up the phone, and it, the adventure begins. But people, people, you because know, you'll get the some people who like follow every rule, and then you yeah. get the other people who like whatever you tell me, I may just push to see mm. if you're serious about that, you know, so that that <laughs> that whatever they enter in with, yeah. you know. We had we did have a rule early on that I stopped saying um, because it was becoming problematic about opening doors that seemed locked because oh, we had yes. some people who went through and were just opening all the doors and yanking them open and it was like <sighs> guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for a while we were saying that just like control yourselves. Um, but um, Lynn, one of our old friends and old board member came, she's like, I took that rule very seriously. So when she got to the end of the maze, there's a oh, curtain yes. and she didn't want to go past the curtain because she'd been told not to open doors. Oh, <laughs> yeah. She's like, okay, well, all right, maybe I will change this rule. I'll stop <laughs> saying it. Maybe it's not a problem anymore. Um, it's such a fine it's line. Just, it's a very fine line. line. Like wanting them to explore and wanting them to be immersed in the experience, but not... Mm-hmm. Screw it up! Like, please don't break things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, where's where's the line? Yeah, I was just I, I would always say like you might get some instructions from people. Mm-hmm. People may speak to you. Please feel free. You may to touch you. Yeah. 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 Um, just try to follow instructions as best you can. Try to be open to it. Yeah. Um, and I try to emphasize going over like the, the they in theory would get an email from Mori Storage inviting them there. Mm-hmm. And I just tried to make sure even if they didn't get all the points that you were chosen to be here and you have things to do tonight. Mm-hmm. You have a mission. So even though they weren't being cast as like you are Susie from first grade and you knew Kana, you know it's <laughs> not that specific. It's you have some weight because you were chosen to be here. And I think just that, at least for me, if I was given that, that gives me a little bit of a agency of mm-hmm. like, I'm walking into this door because they wanted me to be here. And so yeah. I have something to I'm do. I'm important. It, I'm yeah. important. It was such a beautiful entry point that set up because then you walk in as an audience member and the storage workers, the employees are grateful to see you and are appreciative of your being there. And that, is two things. I think it's helpful as a storytelling device, but it's also a familiar experience for anyone that goes to a theater performance or, or any art, anything. There's a sense of gratitude, appreciation, thank you for coming, thank you for paying for your ticket, for mm-hmm. being here. It, it's an easy entry point for people. And there's always mm-hmm. a level, there are some people that would not buy into it. Yes. <laughs> like talking to the actors are like, I'm here to see Kai Don. are you one of the actors? Yeah. And they'd have to kind of keep... <laughs> Um, no, I'm a worker at Maury Storage. When, <laughs> when my father came, he um, <laughs> he said to the one of the dock workers, he said, "Well, I um, he was he said, well, you you know, we I know a lot about this this experience because you see, you see I know I know the director. <laughs> and he, was, he said, director, and he said, yeah, I know Sean. He said, who the fuck is Sean? <laughs> Your dad's name dropping you. <laughs> To, to the characters. <laughs> well, what, one day, hopefully, we'll, we'll all just know how to behave in these things. But it is sort of funny watching, like, the rubber meet the road. And mm-hmm. yeah. and, and, the, and the escape room thing's interesting, because on one level, it's, it's so good that, like, people are learning to, like, enjoy themselves in these kinds of environments. But, uh, but yeah, the idea of, like, everything's got to be locked down. I mean, mm-hmm. I've watched... 
I've watched audiences like tear a lobby apart, oh. thinking that there's going to be there's got to be a clue. It's like no man, it's it's over. You you saw the show. You know you may you may go now. No. Um, <laughs> you know, but but that's the thing is like what what's what's the interface you give to people, right? Like, yeah. What's the framing? You know, um, and and whether that's you know. You know, you, you hope it can be done through contextual clues alone, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, we've sort of learned a lot about people in the past couple of years that contextual clues don't work on everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need very, very clear. What have you felt that, I mean, you're just a couple of days, or just two days, wait, is it Monday? It's Monday. Yesterday so was our closing. Last year was closing. Oh, my God. <sighs> Today was strikes. We were, strike. There are people right now at the space tearing it apart. Yeah. It's very sad. Yeah. It's a little early for a postmortem, but what do you feel that you've learned? And and as one of those things, we're never doing something like this again. <laughs> or or is it <laughs> oh, Chelsea's laughing? <laughs> or or are there other uh, well I think that sometimes we say that never again, and then at the closing, it's like, "Oh, you guys, this, this was fun. Yeah. Let's do this again." Some sort of weird masochistic we all cried. thing. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, crying is traditional. I for cried closing. much earlier. You cried during. No, I cried during Tech Week. Yeah, I didn't I, cry I, I at closing. Tech week, sure. <laughs> I, I, I always cried cried at closings. That was my deal. So, it. I don't think we. Well, we haven't had. I, we we've just been talking. I think a little bit about it, but not not really anything formal. Uh, we about doing it again, or, or mean, just about what you the experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I I think I think there's a consistency uh, conundrum that is one of my big takeaways from the uh, the project. And how do you? There's all these strange exponential things that happen because mm-hmm. you. In a normal run, like we we do long runs typically, two, six to eight weeks is a typical run for a rogue show. But in that time, you're doing maybe four or five shows a week, right? Maybe six if you're really crazy. Mm-hmm. But here you're doing six shows a night. Yeah. So the there's an exponential thing that's happening with the artists. Uh, learning and relearning and and kind of growing in their roles that is in some ways really exciting and in other ways is really challenging to process yeah because i think in some cases there were some really successful things that were discovered and in other moments there were things that were sort of misses because the cast was exploring and improvising in a way that maybe was not supporting a greater objective and so that that is a big learning that I took away from it, and I have a lot of thoughts on how I would address that in the future. Well, one of the cast members said this yesterday, I think, that he was wondering about why he was so tired mm. after yeah. all of this. <laughs> and it's because you do a two-hour show, yeah. and you go through, you immerse yourself in that character, and you go through a two-hour arc and journey, and then you come out of it. Mm-hmm. This was twenty-minute little plays and it was just and I'm in it and I'm out and I'm in it and I'm out and it's just that's a completely different experience and exhausting bodily emotionally everything for an actor there was a cast of 23 I think Mm. for each night which is a pretty large group huge 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 cast and many of those cast members in a 20 minute block would play two and three characters 
and have costume changes. Yeah. And that all the costume changes had to be choreographed in between. So, so I think, I think the, I had, I had a lot of, of, um, a guilt at some point, I think early in the run of the show, because I, I had, had to step, had stepped away to work on another project. And so I wasn't there for the second and third week much of the run. And I really was nervous that the whole cast was going to just be fatigued and that they were going to be bombarded and overwhelmed by having to live through these these stories so many times. And I was really pleasantly surprised when I came back and there was a pretty good energy backstage and folks were actually upbeat and there was a sense of community growing and mm-hmm. so uh, it's an amazing group of people. It's honestly, an amazing group. To to I, do that, what you just said, and come out the end in like happy yeah, <laughs> or content. L- one actress, Lara, she is both the Okiku character in the well mm. and is killed there, and then she's killed a second <laughs> time a few minutes later in the hair story in the small box room. So she that actress in one night is killed twelve times. Wow. And she has to do all of that all, and the the one the, the well piece which was all uh, puppeteered uh, almost all live. Mm. Oh, wow. they, um, the shadow puppets. The shadow puppets yeah. were live. Yeah. She, also, all the voices were live. Yeah. So she she's having they're having to do all of these acrobatics yeah. in terms of performance. And, and the puppeteers in Hoichi, who do who are the shadow people, and the puppeteers of the demons are also the puppeteer of the puppet, the very first fox puppet that you the see at the end of the hall. The the and one of them is also the larger fox creature that kind of comes down the hall so they have to do all these switches so she just three switches have to like changes. run and have to run from one end of the hallway to the other holy mm-hmm. moly and the, there's insane. scenes are timed out in such a way so that there's just enough time for that artist to run and get through their secret passageway right. to then hide and get prepped for their next moment the asms there are five asms on the show and they were moving in between audience movements so we had object we had high ob- crazy objectives with the piece of we never wanted to see a theatrical fixture we never wanted to see a stage manager we wanted to try to hide cameras as much as we could and so um, it, it we labored over that to try to figure it out but I think in the end you don't see those people and you feel a little more lost in it a lot a lot of folks that were working on the piece that had done other immersive projects had said you just stick a stage manager in the corner it's fine we know it's a play and I, I said, why would we do all this? Why would we do all this work if we want <laughs> to just stick a person in black in the corner? Yeah. So yeah. we even gave, in the emergency that a stage manager had to come on stage, we even gave them costumes yeah. so that they could fit they in the world. They all had like black hakama and gi and yeah. It wasn't just like a black shirt. It was actually yeah. like a Japanese pur- silhouette and yeah. a hood if they needed it. Yeah, I, I would say you guys made the right call. I mean, like I've been. You know, there have been some pieces that have been staged where you can figure out who the stage managers are, mm. um, but... How the buttons are being pressed. Yeah, but, but usually just like, you know, luckily they're just kind of floating kind of casual. Um, but when the work really... And, and then, of course, you know, at, at Sleep No More, you've got the black masks yeah. who are, you know, like your ushers. But, like, that thing's so massive. Like, if they weren't there, they have would to. Be, there'd be disaster. It'd be chaos. Yeah, no, yeah. like, they're, they're, you're, th- you're thankful they're there. Um, yeah. those college interns doing it for credit um, <laughs> but um, credits and immersive experiences yeah but but yeah no, it, it, it I think that really paid off for you guys because mm-hmm. it's it definitely felt it definitely felt seamless um, 
like the the closing weekend run like you know there's there's a couple a couple blips on opening night but the, the closing mm-hmm. weekend run like felt like smooth as butter. Our, so. our opening weekend was technically very complicated. We we were not really figured out yet yeah. with our tech. Yeah. Fr- frankly, like the system just wasn't working. So our whole opening weekend, there were were some shows that there were huge sections of the show that were in the dark or that had no sound Ugh. because the system we had, we, we, we actually um, created our own interface system. Every scene had its own little uh, graphic user interface custom for that scene. Holy moly. And so the the interface wasn't properly connecting to all of the different, there, I think there were eight computers at the end of the day Whoa. running all of the different components in the building and everything was networked together so you could ostensibly control any scene from anywhere in the building using these interfaces. But for a couple of silly reasons, it just didn't quite work yet. So it took us really through the first week of our run to troubleshoot the issues and to get everything working. And then after that, it's been pretty much smooth sailing. You guys built a custom setup like that. I mean, you've done, you've invested so much work. Like there's so much sunk cost in in what you've learned tackling this. I'm not, yeah, there's like I'm the not. financial cost, and then there's yeah. also the emotional cost. Yeah, and financial cost, emotional cost, learning cost. Yeah, but it's but I knowing what we know now, it would be much easier, right? Yeah, I or feel not. like I don't I don't want to presume easier necessarily. Because not like the ambition's gonna go away. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. but I don't think easy is anything that we do. Yeah. No, but I feel no. like we all went into this never yeah. having done it before. And having no idea what the right answer what the were. right answer was, and yeah. I feel like we we would have a different set of tools now to go in and mm-hmm. tackle something like this. Yeah, I mean, me as a writer, mm-hmm. I would know how to tackle it in a little in a better way. As a marketing person, I'd know how to tackle it in a better way. As a box office person, I'd know how to tackle it in a better way. All of those things. Mm-hmm. The the yeah the way that we broke up our rehearsal schedule the mm-hmm. the amount of time we spent on certain things that I would have a completely different approach. Um, we we also because we're 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 that we're kind of um, interested in community and connection and 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 uh, how these culturally specific stories. Uh, are are being adapted by a wide group of artists, you know, f- from multiple cultures and multiple backgrounds. We did a lot of work with um, community building and and uh, just trying to create a sense of of um, how the approach was going to be. Like that that was a big part of the rehearsal process, I think, too, and and trying to figure out how to tell these stories in a way that is respectful and yeah. That we're not appropriating something. Yeah. We are telling it in a respectful way, but we're also making it our own. Yeah. And what's the line there? And how we can how can we do that in a respectful way and in a creative way? We, we had some amazing consultants that were a part of the project <clears throat> and that would come and visit rehearsals and mm-hmm. help m- make sure that we were uh, not jumping the rails and, and being respectful in that way. Yeah. yeah. And that's 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 like a, such a whole that's a whole nother kettle of fish. There's actually a show in town right now about that. There's Caught, which is oh, down yes. at, uh, which it's still still going to be running uh, probably when, when this airs, I think it's got one more weekend left, but like when we're talking right now, it's like going to like the ninth. And mm. uh, I'd, I'd encourage you guys to go. I have tickets too. Good, good. I want to go too. Yeah. 
Yeah. You to- totally should. You totally should go. And it's, it's very, very oh, different. Really? Oh. Yeah, it's very, very different. Um, to different beast entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what's interesting there is like you know durational wise, like the, the as I found out yesterday when I interviewed him, like the lead actor in this production was the lead actor in mm-hmm. the New York production, and so it's like so new new production, new director, totally different you know setup, but like sort of wow. getting to you know, watch him. Take, I didn't get to see it, but like you know, going from like traditional staging to mm. the staging they're doing here, uh, that's an evolution, and and just you know what you wind up learning as you go through that. That's fascinating. Um, well, I just for the record want to say uh, that I, I I definitely hope that everything you guys went through and you learned uh, doesn't just get like put on a shelf because like I I I, I so want to see what an evolution. Of, of your work in this form mm. will be um, you know I, I in when I wrote up the the opening weekend like I made a note about Machnas which is like this group in Galway in, in Ireland that they use <clears throat> they use puppetry they use masks to, mm. to to tell you know very you know large stories um, and they were working on like the Irish myth cycle, and they like brought it through in like the late '90s. They toured the states with it. They were doing a Baylor of the Evil Eye, oh, and it wow. was yeah. it was absolutely you know just again like a technically really fascinating thing. Like there's an entrance to the audience of like a of a cow, so there were two actors and like a big cow puppet coming down the vomitorium. It's like another actor chased them trying to like tackle the cow. It was like all this comedy going on, um, and and. You know, there was a there was a live you know Kaylee band and a singer singing Gaelic and just like really, really amazing, uh, and there's just elements of your guys' style that reminds me of like the work they do, mm-hmm. and that just touches on this level where things are things are heightened in a way that lets you ease into the world of the story. Mm-hmm. That lets you do that little that little extra nudge of suspension of disbelief. And in an immersive context, it's really interesting. And like it, it, it. I just I want to see that keep on going. And just technically, like, and 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 where you guys have this ambition to like tackle stories in this way, I just want to see that continue in this mm. one. So, awesome. I just want to tell you guys that. So, <laughs> on the record, <laughs> there's we're no question. That's just, you know, when, when we need when we need a little encouragement, we're going to play this podcast. <laughs> Again and again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that maybe what we learned from this is that that it's that our ambition is correct. I think there's a lot of times mm-hmm. when um, me as a designer and knowing what we're going into and there's um, so many technical elements and I think like no, this is too many. This is too much. <laughs> this can't work. No. Oh, it worked. Oh, it worked. Oh, it's great. Oh my god, it's amazing. And to trust that process and to not be overwhelmed by it is really mm-hmm. is for me personally it can be very tricky to know that like yes this is manageable yes this the end result will will prove that we do need all these elements i mean our 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 one scene of hair it's like there's there's like a tactile cardboard and then inside that is a full set of a Japanese home, very realistic. and then behind yeah. that is a um, a shadow screen that has um, a projection and a human who's a shadow, and then the actor interacts with the sh- the projection and the there's magic, and then there's a second projector, <laughs> and then you're like, what is happening? <laughs> what am I doing again? What's he wearing? Like I don't know anymore. But I think that that 
the further that we move in this process and the more that it, the work that we do and the more that we learn that it's okay and that the end result is all right. And I think that, that for me personally, to trust that process and to know that it's going to come out at the end being amazing and to know that like from what we've done now, how can we like our, our we're, we're bringing back another show called Whip Boy Dogfish that's going to be a proscenium type show. Mm-hmm. Like maybe we'll be influenced by this to have like an aspect that's mm-hmm. that's into like it. An that's, immersive lobby experience. Oh, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that this is such a significant part for us as a company and to to have created this like living, breathing world in a weird warehouse that was like its own little microcosm. I don't think that I think that we are changed. It, that to me is another common denominator with other work the company's done is this the vastness of the the greater world. Like even something like Shakespeareish, hmm. I feel like we could easily make we could easily add other characters to that world because we intuitively know the world mm-hmm. that exists beyond beyond what any audience member is seeing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that e- even though we haven't put an audience in a piece like we did with Kaidan, it feels like... Yeah, we do a lot of world building. Yeah, mm. talking about... With our plays. More yeah. than just a normal play that's set in a living room or something. Because we have these magical elements, yeah. these puppets, these other things, we build completely different worlds. So we already had some of those tools. Yeah. We were just putting the audience in a different place in mm-hmm. the world, yeah. I guess. Well, and the world building is like an essential part of of this of the immersive work because mm-hmm. if you don't build a world there's nothing for the audience to get immersed in you know um and i've i've been to productions where you know the staging is immersive but it isn't really mm-hmm. the world isn't that way so it doesn't click you know? I, i've always thought about this little factoid about jim henson mm. where he when he was working on uh, the dark crystal he had uh brian fruit i think it's proud he had him draw things that were never going to be. By the <laughs> Finally, uh, <laughs> bucket list. Um, no, he he had him draw things that weren't in the film because yeah. he he said, you know, I I need to know, and mm-hmm. and there, there's a lot of, of 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 his you know talking about the the importance of that creating of the world, and I I think it's always been a huge part of every every project yeah yeah for me and the most fun i think that's i love any conversation i mean i remember talking about blue and like what where does she live like what's her world like and i i always i write fiction and plays and i always write something that's i write magical realism and speculative stuff so i'm kind of used to this idea of building something that's much bigger yeah than just a normal world so i guess this Mm. feels natural to me working yeah. with this company mm-hmm. in this way because my mind already works in that way. I remember doing... I just never thought about it in this way, I guess. I remember doing Wood by Dogfish because like, I, I helped on the costume design with that and I would ask you things that were not pertinent to the story in any way. Like, where does Blue live? Like, where does... But where did she go? Like, I know it's not in the story, but where did she go after she, you know, exited stage right? Like, I needed to know these things. Yeah. It was really important. And it's... I mean, those kind of things still are really important. Mm-hmm. But I think that those are... Uh, I mean, I hope that those are questions that all of our teams are asking, our design groups. It's not just like, okay, we need a lamp. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, why a lamp? 
what's the lamb going to do? I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Very complicated. Yeah. That's that's what elevates the work. Any work, you know, mm-hmm. if you if you if you you're telling a story, and every 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 piece of the world has a story. The this this tablecloth has a story. You know, mm-hmm. so th- there's a Santa Claus in the corner of the room. There's clearly a story there. <laughs> um, it's a year-round Santa. Yeah, that mask. Yeah, the pig mask. Yeah, you know. this my mother painted. Yeah, everything's that right. Yeah, the world around us. So Ugh. that's a fun place to stop. So thank you all, <laughs> Chelsea. Thank, thank, so thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Once again, I want to thank Sean, Chelsea, and Lori for being our guests on the show. You can find Rogue Artists Ensemble at Rogue Artists. That's R-O-G-U-E-A-R-T-I-S-T-S dot org. I always spell Rogue and Rouge. I'm one of those people, right? You know, yeah. You, we all know that I'm one of those people, right? Epitome, epitome, come on. Um, in joke for those who've listened... Uh, what do we got here? This is my part of the show. This is my unorganized, unfocused part of the show. Oh, oh, ooh, 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 ooh. I got something written this week. I'm so proud of myself because I've just not had the time to write. Uh, There is a review of a VR piece from Here Be Dragons, specifically director Edward Robles, um, who's name I probably just butchered. Uh, it's called Dispatch. Uh, it stars Martin Starr of Silicon Valley. Uh, this is a fun... Uh, fun my definition of fun is odd i don't I, people don't really understand my tastes um this is a sort of a neo-noir thriller it's an episodic um not a true crime tale but got a bit of a vibe of that at points it's all told through the perspective of a sheriff's 911 dispatcher so the way this works is we're hearing the calls and the vr recreates uh, the world as he imagines it uh, using vector graphics. So it's it's a stylish neo-noir thriller for the Oculus Rift and the Gear VR. It's available now, made its bow at uh, the Venice Film Festival, and it's from the Experience Studio who did the Legion FX activation at Comic-Con this past year. And... Um, and Hubie Dragons has actually done a lot. Like they, they're sort of the pioneers on on the technical side of like the spherical video uh, work. So they've worked a lot with Chris Melk. They've worked with Daniels. They've worked with, um, they've worked with uh, Felix of Punch Drunk. So check it out. Check out the review um, of the VR piece on No Persinium right now. Put it up just before I start recording the show. Um, what else is there in the world? Um, We've got a whole bunch of stuff happening. Um, we've got a new issue of the LA newsletter is striking this weekend. So is the New York newsletter. Catherine is stepping into Zay's shoes and she did a bang up job. If I do say so myself, um, what else is going Oh, 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 um, we're, we're going to unleash a couple of things in, in the next couple of weeks. Um, one of the things is we're going to have an all new way yeah, this is what I want to talk about. So um, this one is is got an LA bent to it, but it's sort of um, it's sort of for everywhere because welcome to a preview of your lives. Um, 
you know, I, I've gone on at length before about how when LAist and the whole Gothamist network imploded. Well, this week in Los Angeles, LA Weekly was just straight up bought by no one knew. No one knew who bought them. It got revealed like today as I'm recording this that uh, a lot of the investors are uh, seemingly like related to the OC Registers op-ed page. So in other words, like some arch conservative dudes decided to buy LA's alt weekly, which means that LA weekly, which, you know, used to be to the left of the LA times will now be probably pretty far to the right of the LA times. Now I don't usually talk about politics in here, but I think we pretty much know that progressive politics and culture generation, you know, they often kind of go hand in hand, experimental culture, progressive. I mean, think about it. You know, the 60s, need I say more? Not really. Uh, And Alt Weekly has always been the heart of any sort of experimental arts community. So for all intents and purposes, we're losing the LA Weekly um, as anything that's going to be good for edgy work, work exploring in terms of cultural product. I mean, who knows if you're even going to still, you know, review rock shows, right? I mean, like how, how conservative are these guys going to be? Um, this is just, this is the way the world is now. Um, if, if a media concern is of a certain size, it just gets bought by a rich person with a political agenda. Uh, as someone who's been in media his entire life, I prefer when media is as neutral as possible. Uh, media should be a platform for the discussion of ideas, the exploration of things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I try and keep my politics out of this, uh, but they leak through because, you know, I am who I am. Um, but I don't try and shove it in your faces. Um, honestly, ironically, I could probably be a lot richer if I shoved my politics in people's faces. Um, I'll think about that in the new year. I will. Not on this show, but just in general. Where's this going? Noah, where's it going? Turning off, turning off. Here's the point. LA Weekly is dead, all right? It is dead. It might as well be dead. It's going to be dead within a year because there's no way in hell that a far-right weekly, alt-weekly, who used to make its money off of, you know, listings for medical marijuana shops, uh, is going to weather the storm. It's just not. It probably was bought to kill it. Um, and maybe to do some who knows what they're going to write. All right. But just don't expect it to be around. Don't expect it to be useful for any sort of cultural coverage. I can pretty much guarantee that. Why? Because they fired nearly everyone this week. It's gone. The LA Weekly you knew, gone. Elliot is gone. Right? LA Magazine took a massive hit this year. Okay, Cultural coverage is being wiped out everywhere. Okay, People in the media are losing their jobs left and right. BuzzFeed is laying off like 8% of its staff because they didn't reach their revenue projections. Why is BuzzFeed not reaching their revenue projections? Well, because Facebook controls the number one platform that BuzzFeed needs. BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed, which was everywhere, right? Probably, maybe their projections were a little aggressive, but still. And just so you know, they're mostly laying off business people, sales folks. Um, So at least they're not 
slashing coverage yet, yet. What does this have to do with us? Well, if you check any creator right now, they're kind of nervous because the question is, how do we grow the audience for this type of work? How do we make it more sustainable, right? Because as fun as it is for us all to be part of this like kind of in-crowd community, if we do not grow, we die. Immersive, live immersive cannot be people's hobbies for long. There's only so many years that people can pour in and dedicate the kind of resources that it takes and just do it without there being any sort of sustainable feedback. Pretty much everything we do here or that I do and yeah, the team does is predicated on the idea that we're working towards sustainability, that we're working towards sustainability for no pro for our writers, some of whom have been laid off or lost their freelance hooks. Um, when we do things with Leia, that's predicated in the idea that we need to like create a stable foundation on which this stuff can grow as well as some protections for the people who are doing like the really weird shit. Okay. That's what it, the work is all the time. Even the design summit, which is like, eating up a lot of my bandwidth mentally these days, um, customer service stuff, yada, 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 spreadsheets, spreadsheets. My life is spreadsheets. Um, even that is about the long arc of sustainability. Okay. So it all fits together. Losing LA weekly is big. Do not be shocked if your local alt weekly dies as well. It was voice media. The people who own the village voice or used to own the village voice. I can't, I can't even keep track anymore. They're the ones who sold LA weekly to these dudes from the OC. The Bay area has seen this sort of thing in the past as well. Will another alt weekly arise in order to, you know, hold the line? not in the way that we'd like it to. There's a big gap in cultural coverage in Los Angeles right now. There's a huge giant hole here between LAist dying, Thrillist going off the rails. Um, I mean, just, just look at Juliet Bennett Ryla's um, Twitter feed where she like eulogized all the, all the, all the outlets she used to write for. Patton Oswalt noticed, Patton Oswalt quote tweeted Juliet. All right, Juliet, who sometimes writes for us, where does all this lead? We're opening up a new revenue stream just for the writers here at NoPro. All right. So if you are the kind of person who looks at the Patreon and goes like, oh, I don't know, it's a lot of commitment, you know, even though it's a dollar a month, you know, we ask for that. Look at what we're going to put out. We're using Gumroad to create a little donation box. Uh, we saw, I think the establishment or some other medium based publication was doing this. And I was like, oh, we could do that. We could do that and send that money directly. We, if, it's like, if we can track which article gets donated on. So we're starting this pilot program. We're going to start pacing these in on, not on the newswire stuff, but on the feature articles and on the reviews, we're going to put this donation page. Uh, and the minimum is like a buck. Okay. So, and the idea is that you can, it's a tip jar. You want to tip your writer. Tip the writer there. We'll track it. Assuming that works, 
we'll, we'll keep it. The idea is we're going to track it and we're going to send that money directly to the writer. You're paying them. You're not paying us. Gumroad takes a cut. The ed board will not take a cut. I'm not putting it on my own stuff yet. I may put it on my own stuff at some point, particularly if we see, you know, the revenue go a certain way. I mentioned this in this big context because it is so important in this day and age that readers and writers have a direct relationship because no one is coming along to protect the folks who write about cultural stuff for a living. It's great when it can be people's hobbies, but we aim towards a level of professionalism because when it's just people's hobbies and when it's just about being part of a cultural scene, it's far too easy to slip into everything is wonderful. Everything's the best. I'm just happy to be here. And I got to see the show for free. It's far too easy to slip into that. The relationship needs to be between the readers, the audience and the writers. All right. That's what it's got to be used to be that it was the writers to the publication, the publication to the advertisers, the advertisers wanted the audience. And so they paid for whatever brought the audience in and the audience had the relationship to the writers that way. That's what defends us from defended us for a long time from corruption. It's gone. It's gone. So when that gumroad thing comes along and you read something by Jessica or Catherine or Anthony or Carly or Juliet or Leah or Edward or Alex or KJ or Kara or Max or anyone who comes along and writes for us and you go like, wow, that was a well-written piece. You know what to do. That'll debut next week. Got a couple of things, got to plug in, but it'll be there. And thank you, Jessica, for setting that up. And thank you for all of you who back the Patreon, who are thinking about this Gumroad thing actively right now, who do not want to see this sort of cultural writing disappear from the face of the earth. Because that's what we're standing at right now, at the precipice. Thank you for being our lights in the darkness. I really mean that. Sadly, this isn't even about sustainable careers at this point, right? A tip jar is not going to be getting one health insurance. A tip jar is not going to cover anyone's rent. But it's going to take the sting away. All right. Um, there is plenty going on. There are selfie palaces a go-go in Los Angeles. There's holiday parties coming up. There's We're on a lookout for New Year's Eve stuff. If you hear about immersive New, New, New Year's Eve things, please let us know. I got to get rocking and rolling. Thank you for hanging around for the rant. Please, please, please tip your waiter. And now the credits. Music for this episode, as always, is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The sustaining backers of No Proscenium are Ross Sigworth, Bradley Smith, and Lonnie Hanson. Thank you, gentlemen. You can join the backers at patreon.com slash no proscenium. You can find no proscenium at no proscenium.com. We're at no proscenium on Twitter. Thank you, Catherine, for keeping that alive. We're also at no proscenium on Facebook. Ditto. And uh, we're on Instagram, no underscore proscenium. So basically you can't escape us. We're everywhere. I'm Noah Nelson. Until next time, I'll see you at the show.